your head how many White Sox no-hitters you've seen in your lifetime? In my lifetime, um, four. I would count the Burley um, no-hitter and his perfect game I watched. Um, I did did watch the Lucas Giolito one that we discussed last year. Mm -hmm. Actually, I did watch the Philip Umber uh, perfect game, too. Jeez. Um, and that man, that was a guy that was perfect game to kind of out of baseball pretty quick too. <laughs> um, so Philip Umber, and then, um, to be a hundred percent honest, I watched the early part of Rodon's game mm-hmm. and then I started to get my kids ready for bed. And then I was laying there and I was like, Oh, it's the sixth inning. And he's still got. I looked it up. I'm like, whoa, no walks either. I'm like, he's got a perfect game going. I'm like, I might have to stay up and watch this. So I threw <laughs> the, the game on my phone and watched uh, seven, eight, and nine. I just thought to myself, he, I'm either going to watch the perfect game or I'm going to watch a no hitter. Either way, when the when it's over, either the perfect game, no hitter, or the game's over, then I'll, you know, that's when I'll be done. And uh, yeah, it was really kind of a unique in just the fact that it didn't look like he was striking out guys early and then later on had some more velocity and was getting some more strikeouts late than he was early. It was kind of odd for what I've gotten used to from Carlos Rodon, where um, usually when he's striking guys out early, it's, you know, he's done by the third or fourth inning. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, this was a, a just a wonderful game for him. Yeah, I mean, you strike out guys early. That's always a good thing, but that also means that your pitch count is usually going to be up by sixty or seventy by the third or fourth inning, and yeah, you'll be lucky to get five or six in at that point. So honestly, good strategy, Carlos. I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. Not striking guys out early on. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? How no hitters kind of take on different personalities because there are obviously so many different ways you can throw one. And I just kind of think back to the way you're kind of describing Rodon's uh, Alec Mills no hitter last year with the Cubs was one where he struck out, I think maybe three off the top of my head. And that one was just known much more for, I think like literally every single player on the field made at least one play behind him. Like okay. that, that was how that worked out. And whereas you know, a couple of years earlier, you have Jake Arietta just mowing down the Dodgers, like, you know, the banshee from hell that, that he usually right. on the mound. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, I guess, kind of one of the, the fun things about watching the feet of a no-hitter is, is that um, some of them obviously are just pure and utter dominance from one guy, but others, it's like, uh, yeah, you need the entire group to pitch in to get this thing taken care of. Right. I, I would describe Burley's perfect game that way that, you know, the guy pulled that home run in all, all over the wall, you know, Dwayne Wise with that catch. Mm-hmm. And there was just some amazing plays behind him that day. And for a guy that really throughout his career pitched to contact and was a ground ball pitcher, the probability didn't seem all that high for a perfect game, but it was so fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, do they still have that spot marked on the outfield wall? Yes. At, yeah. The catch. It's, <laughs> yes. You think if anyone points that out to like, if Willie Mays happens to stop by a guaranteed rate field, he goes, what the fuck? No. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know that uh, he'll be coming to uh, guarantee. What are we guaranteed rate this year? Uh-huh. But uh, I'd be happy to explain it to him in person if, he, <laughs> if Willie ever decided to visit. I think there would be like several, several thousand people would be okay with that assignment. That uh, yeah, yeah. Probably and, to, you probably have to listen to him complain about modern player salaries because I hear that's what <laughs> Willie does almost nonstop. But yeah, I'd take that for being yeah. in the presence for a little while. Right, and I mean, with Burley, Reinsdorf never hid the fact that he loved Mark Burley. So I think as long as uh, Reinsdorf owns the White Sox, that the catch will be out there. You know what I mean? So, yeah, and that's one of the great moments in franchise history. So yeah, yeah it was I, fun. I don't blame him. Uh, and you know, honestly, ace, ace of the World Series winner. Yeah, I could see falling in love with a person like that. You know, I yeah, I tend to be fond of your Kyle Hendrixes, your Jake Arrietas, your John Lester. I even even old John Lackey is is kind of I found a little spot in the heart for that very very angry Texan. So yeah, I get it. Yeah, John Lester was a fun pitcher. Oh yeah, yeah, John Lester, like stubborn, like as both a good and occasionally awful personality traits like because there were days where he just didn't have it but he was going to attack you the same damn way just low and away low and away low and away and i i'm either this is either going to work or you're going to get me out of there after two innings and 10 runs uh i was, was going to say yeah i've seen both versions of him with the cubs and with the red Sox, where he was right on right from the get-go mm-hmm. uh i've also seen him john lester where he wasn't right the first inning and then come out like a different guy in the second inning and had it all together. Like he would give up a three run lead to, you know, or go down by three runs and then come out and just mow him down the rest of the way. So yeah, he was not an easily, I guess whether he was ever rattled, but uh, yeah, it was a fun pitcher to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I'm one of my all time favorites and the greatest free agent signing in Cubs history. So, you know, no. again, I, they brought him in to win a World Series, and lo and behold, look what he did. And yeah, then, mission accomplished. Yeah, how many other Cubs free agent signings can you say that about? Not Milton Bradley, that's for <laughs> sure. Uh, they just replayed the uh, Milton Bradley, uh, Cockley. Is Cockley a word? I'll yeah, go with that it. works. Uh, that works. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was there for it. So, yeah, Cockley does Oh, works. did you catch the ball when he threw it into the stands no, no, when there was, was only two outs? And there, there was... The way it played out, because uh, it was in the middle of fans were booing him from the start because he's one of the worst people in baseball history, and right. he also sucked as a Cub, so that didn't help. He was terrible but, as a Cub. Uh, I remember that moment. There were, like, runners on first and third, I want to say, and one out, and the batter hits a sack fly to right field. So Milton catches it, and after he catches it, he, like, stops and pauses and poses, and the runner on third scores, and you're like, okay, what are you doing, Milton? And then he turns, and as soon as he turns, I'm thinking, oh, my God, he thinks there's three outs. And he fires the ball into the right field stands, and the runner on first, I think they awarded him third, but they didn't, through charity, allow him to score. Yeah, it was something weird. Um, our uh, One of my favorites, uh, Skip Parker, was uh, doing the news uh, last week because it was the anniversary, I believe. He looks a lot like our friend Mike Toomey. I don't know if yeah. you knew that, but yeah. they look We're a lot alike. Two in the same room, oddly. Yeah, <laughs> and he replayed the um, that that play by Milton Bradley for the anniversary. So that was fresh in my mind. I thought that was a, a really funny play. Yes. Um, whenever guys lose track of the outs, I, I, who was it that was a lifelong or not a lifelong Rocky? 
Oh, Larry or, Walker. Yeah. Larry Walker did it too, where he handed yeah. the ball to a kid and yep. then took it yeah. back. Just trying to be nice. You know, he's Canadian. Right. It's a polite thing to do. <laughs> it was wonderful. <laughs> and maybe, maybe, you know, it's the exchange rate. Maybe he thought there were three outs Canadian. So perhaps, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, let's jump into this because we're about to jump onto the Carlos Rodon uh, saga after the show open here. This is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network, the Outsports Baseball Podcast. Dig this. You have stopped by for episode 72, the Carlton Fisk episode of Three Strikes You're Out. Well, I love it, here, my friend. Uh, my name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports Baseball Prospectus, and as of yesterday, fully vaxxed comedian. So I might get to tell jokes in shitty bars in the UP sometime again. Hooray. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, the world is returning to normal. Sure, why not? Uh, the other voice you are hearing is a familiar one, a friend of the pod, comedic best buddy, and host of Punches and Punchlines. Fritz Nothnagel is back because it's a new tradition. Every time the White Sox throw a no-hitter, you're on the show, Fritzy, and hey, that's a yearly thing, I guess. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I would love to be on the the show multiple times a year let's just keep getting the no hitters and uh this will be fun <laughs> the way it's turning out you know uh, giolito i should have another one in him at some point and the, the way baseball is now with so many guys swinging and missing and so many strikeouts i would venture to guess we're it's going to be one of those years where we're just going to see a ton of no hitters because that's so little contact now in the game yeah i i find it hard to uh have a counterpoint on that one there is a lot of swing and miss and yeah, uh, I, I'm struggling to, okay. to yeah, disagree right. with you there. Yeah. I can't. This isn't first take. You don't have to disagree with everything I say. Yeah, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but uh, before we jump into the uh, Carlos Rodon no-hitter from last week, uh, I wanted to mention off the top, on you posted on the Punches and Punchlines Instagram about a week or two ago uh, a clip where you made what I thought was a uh, fairly understandable reference to Raspberry Beret. Uh, the kind you find, <laughs> find at a secondhand store. And your co-host, Franco, whipped. Totally utterly. whipped on it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was a fun moment in the show for me because I wasn't the one uh, who didn't <laughs> know a very iconic song. Like, yeah. I don't think it was his biggest hit ever, but it was certainly a hit. It's and Yeah, without a doubt. And it was funny to me that he is a art teacher and he was taking me 100% literal when I was like, no, it's a raspberry beret. And he's like, oh, I should have known that shade because I'm an art teacher. I'm like, no, you weirdo. It just that you should know a Prince song when you hear it. You brought up the color wheel just to... <laughs> yeah, it's, I was going to ask, like, are we at a point now in time? Because it's been 35 years, I think. That is, is raspberry beret going to be an obscure reference at this point? Because that's sad perhaps yeah that's a touchstone man yeah that i mean i remember that song i had to have been when was it when was it on 80, the chart like 85 it's uh, around the world in a day was the year after purple rain so 85. okay so yeah i mean i was 11 at the time mm -hmm. that's uh wow that's really going back i thought it was high school but no that was that was definitely grammar school days for me so yeah yeah and i'm gonna use that to find a somewhat depressing segue back into the topic of no hitters, but bear with me. This is going somewhere because uh, last we just uh, marked the fifth anniversary yesterday, actually of Prince's passing. And uh, that day was just a, as you can imagine, a day for me, like, because I was flying home from, I was living in New York city at the time, was flying home to uh, do some road work back in the Midwest. 
So I was in LaGuardia that morning, uh, waiting at the Southwest Terminal, um, which uh, when I say terminal, I mean hallway. Uh, if anyone I've been. Southwest and LaGuardia, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, all of a sudden I get a text from uh, actually our old comic buddy, Derek Harrington, uh, out of the blue saying, just heard about Prince, I'm so sorry. And you know, Derek is not, you know, the biggest Prince fan in the world uh, because right. Prince was not a member of Pantera. So <laughs> I get that and I think, okay. So I uh, ran back to find a sports bar with a TV on and had a CNN feed. And sure enough, yeah, it was the news that Prince suddenly passed away and like, you know, shocked and obviously crestfallen. And within like 30 minutes, one of my best friends from college, who was the guy who got me into him in the first place, called me and were commiserating before I got on the plane of just how, you know, this is dumbfounded. Like there are no words. So, you know, I'm, I'm crushed for the entire flight. And I uh, land in Milwaukee where my dad is picking me up and taking me back to my parents' place uh, to visit with them for a little bit. And we put the Cubs game on the radio that night. And they're in Cincinnati. And this is the 2016 Cubs. So they are crushing the Reds. Like Bryant, Rizzo, Javi, everybody's just going off. So it's, it's by the third or fourth inning, you know, it's going to be a blowout lap. Or so at least that's a non-stressful thing. Then around the sixth inning, um, Pat Hughes mentions, and Jake Arrieta has not allowed a hit tonight. And so we're thinking, okay, I remember from last year, if Jake Arrieta doesn't allow a hit through six, something interesting can happen. So we get home by about the seventh, turn it on, and watch the last two innings of Jake Arrieta completing his second no-hitter in like 10 starts. Nice. And so again, my phone blows up that night with other friends saying, oh my God, this is incredible. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. And I am done with this day (laughs) emotional torture in terms of like the polar opposite sides of the roller coaster but i yeah that that was just like i was thrilled and excited but just mentally exhausted at that point uh so that is i guess the the overlong lead up to uh yeah carlos rodan's no hitter i think a little little less traumatic than that for you which is good uh did you think he had the shot of the perfect game um, I really did, especially going after he got through the lineup in the seventh. Uh, so he got through their top three hitters in the seventh. And I was like, all right, you just got to face the bottom two thirds of the order now. And then after that play at first base where Abreu slid in to save the perfect game, I was like, oh, this is this is one of those games where it's almost like meant to be. You know, I was like this that was a hell of a play. Like he didn't care whether he hurt himself. He just wanted to keep that uh, perfecto intact. And it was really just a, you know, one of those selfless plays on, on uh, Abreu's part. And then the very next batter, uh, I think it was the next batter just gets that slider that had been working all night long. Mm-hmm. You know, he even said in the post game interview, he's like, you know, I threw a back foot slider and, Unfortunately, it was a back foot slider because <laughs> yeah. caught him right on the toe. And um, yeah, it was it was fun to watch Carlos do it, in my opinion, because I remember when the Sox drafted him in 2014, he was the number three overall pick. And um, right before your, your guy Schwarber, and there were some really fun players in that draft you know that we've come to know since then anyway like Michael Conforto was in that draft who I really love 
Um, Matt Chapman was in that mm. draft. And actually, the other White Sox pitcher, Michael Kopech, was in that same first round. You know, Nice. So the Sox have never held back on pitchers getting them up to the big leagues right away. So Carlos made his debut the following year, right after he was drafted. Um, I thought that he actually came up the same year as he was drafted, but that was just Chris Sale that did that. Hmm. Um, Rodon came up April of the following year. So he was just, you could see that he had like really good stuff right from the get-go, but then he'd always run into this wall of like the big inning, you know? And I was like, all right, you got to get through that. And then he did half of his starts would have that big inning where he'd give up two or three, you know, once you saw a guy or two get on, you can almost see it unravel a little bit. Hmm. And, um, then I'd also have him see um, these games. I think he had like a 17 strikeout game against the Cubs once where I was like, he sometimes looked like he just had unhittable stuff. We were like, well, I would love this guy to go out there every fifth day, you know? Um, but inconsistencies didn't, I guess, discourage me from really loving Carlos. I, I, I just, he, the times that I saw him as really fun, I wanted to keep that coming. And then he got hurt and I was like, all right, well, that's a bummer. And then they were talking about not even bringing him back and they non-tenured him and he ends up signing like a bare bones deal just because he wanted to come back to the Sox with what they had built and to see him take that, you know, kind of uh, team friendly deal and actually get to prove that they were right for drafting him in the first round. You know, they were, they were right to at least take a flyer on him to have him come back. And for that game, he was, he was great. You don't get much closer to perfect than that. No walks, no hits, just a hit batter. That's pretty tough. Yeah. It's I, that's really says a lot about his commitment to his teammates and in the direction the Sox have been going the past couple of years that, he would, after an organization tells him, we would rather not pay you what you're worth, still be like, okay, I still want to be there. Right. Like he would be perfectly within his rights to shop around and say, okay, where else can I go? That at least makes me feel a bit more wanted. But I I guess feeling wanted by everybody else in that locker room was enough for him. And that really speaks incredible volumes, what they got going on. Aside from the no hitter too, look, I was glad to see him come back to the White Sox because I didn't want my last images of him to be the guy that Ricky Renteria brought in out of the bullpen, mm-hmm. even though he hadn't been pitching out of the bullpen since 2015, you know, last year it was like, he brought him in with, I think bases loaded or first and second. It's like, this is not how you get a guy used to coming out of the bullpen. You know what I mean? Like there was better ways to go about it. And it was, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm happy he's back with the with the White Sox. I'm uh, even more ecstatic. I got him for two dollars in my auction draft. You know what I mean? Like these are all wonderful yeah. things. Yeah. So you non-tendered him in your fantasy draft and got him cheap too. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so do you think the the question then becomes: Had it been a perfect game, would Jerry Reinsdorf order the words "the slide" stenciled in by first base to mark that every <laughs> game going forward? It might be. It, I would picture it maybe like Abreu would have to wear those that on his pants everywhere you know, like, <laughs> like, never wash <laughs> uh yeah and and I like 
um, just hearing the clips of how he was, how Carlos Rodon was after that game, where you came so close to obviously making history as a no-hitter, but another step up in making history. You have only, what, 23 perfect games total in baseball? I believe that's right. Yeah, um, but he was taking it in stride and really just enjoying the moment. Um, and I think that that's such a positive way of, of approaching something like that and probably has something to do with the fact that he's coming back from injury recently and, and only last, last year put up an over 800 ERA. So uh, right. I think it's probably a, a function of where he came from and, and the perspective he's managed to keep because of that. Yeah, I love exactly what you're saying, that instead of ho-humming the fact that he didn't get the perfect game, he was celebrating the no-hitter. Mm-hmm. You know, like if he would have hit that guy in the toe in the second inning, it would still be the no hitter. You know, uh, it was, I think he was approaching it that way. And the the fact that he was really enjoying the moment and really kept a pretty clear level head about it seemed pretty great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think back to, uh, do you know, Milt Pappas's almost perfect game from the early seventies. Is that where the ump didn't call the strike? Or he says that the ump didn't call the strike? I'm familiar with the story of it. Yeah, Yeah, it's uh, for those listening who aren't familiar, just to be quick about it. uh, Milt Pappas was one strike away from a perfect game in like 1972 for the Cubs. And on a 3-2 pitch, he always says it was super close. And Bruce Fremen, the umpire, called ball four. And you could see like in that moment, like he's just raging at him on the mound, like the exact opposite of the way Rodon was. And for the rest of his life, because the Cubs have him back every year to sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And inevitably, whenever the subject got brought up, like not even discussing the umpire's call, just mentioning the, the no-hitter, because that's what he was known for, Milt Pappas would always himself bring up Bruce Fremming and how he screwed up his, his moment in baseball history to the point where on Twitter, whenever Milt Pappas would drop the words Bruce Fremming, like 10 c- different Cub fans would immediately type the words drink. <laughs> now, the... I heard Mil Pappas on the radio talking about the game. And he's like, you know, I saw a perfect game. Uh, everybody else saw a perfect game. I don't know what the hell you know, uh, Bruce Fremming was looking at that day. But uh, how was the pitch? Was it close or was it a ball? Do you remember it's the weird. footage? I don't. The only footage I've seen of that pitch are from a camera behind the plate and overhead. Like I've never actually seen from a center field camera, which I don't know why they don't have that. So it's really hard to tell, honestly, how close it was. Like, to me, it looks like it might have been low based on how the catcher moved on it. But, you know, I've never really seen an angle that, like, defines exactly whether or not this was a good call or a call that would have been a, hey, I want to call a perfect game, so here you go kind of thing. Right. But, uh, you know, Milt certainly kept the bitterness with him for the rest of his life. And, uh, you know, if that sustained him, good on you, Milt. But uh, yeah. as Rodon showed, there are better ways to handle that, I, I yeah. would hope, you know? A little, little fire in his belly. That's what yeah. it kept him yeah. around. Uh, so going forward, um, and I realize this is an unfair question to ask because we're only, you know, three weeks into the season. But going forward, is Carlos Rodon more a Mark Burley or a Philip Umber? I certainly hope more Mark Burley because a lot like Reinsdorf, I loved Mark Burley myself. Um, You know, came out of the bullpen in the world series, you know, just was an innings eater year after year after year. Um, Was famous for his games that were about two hours or just under, you know, it was such 
uh, a fun pitcher. And I, w- I would really love for Rodon to just be able to stay healthy. And I like that his even his last start since that uh, no-hitter, he came out and didn't have his best stuff. Like you could see he wasn't getting kind of the the spin that he wanted on his slider, but he was still able to get the get the win. I know it's kind of a, a, a throwaway stat right now, but he was able to hang in there for the five innings, mm-hmm. uh, keep the Red Sox off the board, and keep his team in the game. So I thought that was a big step for him then when he doesn't have his good stuff to be pitching still well enough for the team to win, where some of his early years after he first came up, when he had his good stuff, it was going to be a, a great time, but I'd also see him melt down when he didn't, it didn't have it, but I'm hoping that this last game was a good sign of uh, things to come. Yeah. It's usually a sign of pitchers maturing. It's what we talked about with John Lester earlier that, uh, you know, I'm still going to come at you with my game plan. And even if the stuff isn't there, I trust myself enough to know that I can figure out how to get you out and get us through five or six. Based on recent history, there's a 50% chance the White Sox will rename their ballpark after one of these sponsors. The big story that's going to follow the Sox for pretty much the entire year, at least to me at this point, is watching Tony La Russa attempt to learn how to manage in 2021 with one of the most talented rosters they've had since probably those mid-2000s teams. And at this point, uh, you've seen three weeks of him. How is he adapting to modern-day baseball? Well, I, the one game that he came out right away and said like, Oh, I left that guy in too long. Uh, we all agreed with him. You know, like, <laughs> he was just beating us to the, to the punch because, but so far so good. I, you know, it's hard to judge with as little baseball as we've had so far, but that first week is meant for overreacting, mm-hmm. you know, like that's the fun of loving baseball that much. So the first week, they were up by, I think, one over the Angels. And going into the bottom of the eighth, the Angels had their top three hitters coming up. All right. So I was like, all right, it's the eighth inning, but bring in bring in Liam Hendricks because you got the, their best hitters coming up. I don't care if it's the eighth. Like you said, you're not going to be a push-button bullpen. Like show it right now. And Hendricks didn't come out for the eighth. I'm like, well – you lied to us in spring training, you know, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's the overreactions of the first week. Mm-hmm. And I think really the key to what the White Sox are going to be this year is if Yohan Moncada can actually play the way he was before his COVID uh, last year, which really slowed him down. And then if Luis Robert can even live up to 75% of what he can be, I think this, team will be unstoppable, but you just got to get, I think those two guys are the keys to the White Sox uh, year. And, you know, you have guys starting in polar opposite directions in the two you mentioned. How how encouraging is it to see Luis Robert putting up the numbers he has for the first three weeks after that really awful slump he had in the last half of last year? It's, it's wonderful to see because he looks like a kid that really enjoys playing the game. Mm -hmm. He's athletically gifted, like not a lot of dudes I've ever even seen play the game. You know, it's like the, he's the 1% of the 1%, you know, like just the way he can run. It's incredible. So he's fun to watch just because 
I can't imagine as close as you're going to get to like a superhero. You know what I mean? Like he's really that athletically gifted that it's fun to watch. It's almost like the, you know, the young days of, you know, Griffey, where you just see him gliding through in the outfield or, you know, you're like, how does a human do that? Like, it doesn't (laughs) seem possible, you know, for a guy who, when I was playing baseball, my coach said, I run like I'm, I'm mad at the, at the, at the basis, you know, like I'm just (laughs) stomping along, you know? So, uh, so yeah, Rob, Robert has been a, a fun surprise. And I hope, and I was hoping he'd get off to a hot start just to keep kind of that snowball going down the hill in the right direction. Yeah, that's, that's got to be a real confidence builder for him just to remind him, hey, all of these skills you have are still there. And conversely, Moncada has gotten off to a slow start, but it's only three weeks at this point. Do you think uh, having the COVID recovery might put a little added pressure on him when he thinks about kind of recovering from that or recovering from his statistical slow start, I mean? I'm not sure that he's a guy that puts a ton of, you know, pressure on himself. He, I just think... You know, like when you're coming out to your own song as your entrance song, like, you know, he recorded his hip hop song over the over the the off season and (laughs) that's what he walks out to. So you got to be a pretty confident dude if you're going to pull that (laughs) off. I just think, um, you know, once he starts getting some some bats on the balls, I think, you know, by all star break, you will be talking about what good of what kind of a year he's having instead of the slow start that he's gotten off to. Hmm. Can you imagine Harold Baines coming out to a song he'd recorded? <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> the, the quietest tw- 20 seconds in baseball. Yeah, I, I I couldn't even imagine Harold Baines coming out to a song Yohan Moncada did. He'd be like, no, nope, I'm not coming out until you turn that off. You, know I mean? like, <laughs> <laughs> you kids with that loud music. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned Larusa not going to Hendricks in the eighth inning. And it's interesting to kind of double back on that. Tony Larusa. He made himself known as a manager as the guy who made the ninth inning closer a thing with Dennis Eckersley in Oakland, because that was going against the trend of how every other manager in the game was using relievers at that point. It was before Eckersley, it was guys like, you know, Bruce Suter and, and Goose Gossage who would come in in the eighth and sometimes the seventh and complain about the nerds ruining baseball, but also, you know, would crush you with split fingers or fireballs for two or three innings at a time. And and LaRusso was the one who kind of made it know we're going to have an eighth inning guy and a ninth inning guy. That's the way it's going to work. And it turned out, you know, obviously perfect for him in Oakland. So in a way, LaRusso is going against like Tony LaRusso. If, yeah. if he's going to be using Liam Hendricks in spots before the ninth inning. Well, yeah, he might've just lied to me because, <laughs> I, you know, he waited till the ninth to bring in Hendricks at that time. But I remember thinking like, if you have your, their best hitters coming up, why not go with your best pitcher? You know, like who cares about the save stat? Yeah. I, I mean, when I have the guy on my fantasy team, I want him to get the save, but uh, <laughs> first of all, I want the white Sox to get the win, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and the state, the save we've known for years at this point is some, perhaps even a less meaningful stat than the win, just because there are <laughs> so many ways to get it uh, and managing for that stat. Yeah. It's we, we've, figured out at this point that that's suboptimal bullpen usage so it's it probably makes closers feel better if you manage them for saves because that's obviously money in their bank account the next offseason but right. teams are now paying like dominant middle relievers good money now too so it's it's you you're not going to lose guys if if you 
bring them in before then, I don't think, because front offices recognize that that's a more valuable thing if you can go five or, or six outs at a time, too. Right. And when Andrew Miller was coming out for eighth innings in ninth, they, like, they would bring out Andrew Miller whenever they needed the best guys out. Didn't matter right, left, whatever. Like, I remember his one or two year run where he wasn't necessarily always the ninth inning guy, yeah. but he'd come out and just shut a team down. It was crazy. Yeah, that, he was the guy that really popularized changing that mindset because everybody knew who Andrew Miller was in that 2016 postseason because he was the guy you had to figure out how to beat if you were going to beat Cleveland in the end. And yeah, and, uh, yeah. how did that season turn out? So, uh, remind me that, that actually, I think they canceled everything that year. Ah. And uh... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. seems like things were going in a good direction too. Well, <laughs> uh, and on the subject of things going in a good direction, uh, when your guy, Eloy Jimenez went down in spring training, it was a very sad thing, obviously. And it, it's the kind of thing that when you lose a guy who is that much, a, a, that much a backbone of your lineup, you need somebody to step up and fill in and kind of take his place. And like we all predicted, your mean Mercedes is the guy. Absolutely. Holy Um, cow. What is is going on there, Fritzy? Yeah. And some of those home runs have been moonshots. Wow. I was sitting on the couch for one of his uh, homers that looked like it was going to get to the concourse at Sox park. I was like, my goodness. Like Hmm. I didn't even wait for it to, to see where it landed. Like the second I heard that crack, you know, the sound, and uh, I was like, oh, my, you know, like I just, you know, it, it, me, yeah, it was pretty wonderful. Um, so, yeah, he's certainly been fun. And it's a nice story of just a, a guy who spent 10 years in the minors mm-hmm. and has refused to give up. He's played different independent leagues. He just keeps chasing it. And God bless him for even let's say it even ended right now. Like it would be still a cool story that he played a month in the big leagues, you know, like after suffering through all that. But I think that he showed uh, actually some patience at the plate hmm. and a decent eye and doesn't give away at bats. Like he will foul stuff off. He approaches at bats like a guy who's been in the league, you know, for a few years. So he's been fun to watch. And, you know, I really hope that he can, even make up for some of the the offense that we're going to lose with Eloy. Mm-hmm. The thing that hurt with losing Eloy was another thing that he was just such a fun dude to watch. Like he, you know, I don't give a lot of credence to they keep the clubhouse loose and all this and that, but there is something to it. And the guy showed up with a huge smile on his face all the time. Every Homer would be like, hi mom. You know, like he was just really a fun player to watch. Mm-hmm. and um, so I'll, I'll miss just the fun that he brought to the game until he gets back. Yeah. Well, you know, in a clubhouse that also has Tim Anderson and Luis Robert, there's no more fun. So. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yeah. But that that's, you know, and your main Mercedes, again, if, you know, this is the only month he had in the big leagues, he's also set a record in the short time that he's played up here, like that opening the season eight for eight that nobody's yeah. ever done before. So he's already put his name in the record books. And then even beyond that, he's been a very valuable hitter in that lineup. So yeah, absolutely. And I, I like the fact that LaRusso was trying to get him into the lineup the other day and give Abreu a day off in the field. So they put your mean there and he didn't have a great play at first. 
you know, it was a low throw by, uh, by, by Madrigal, mm-hmm. but you know, when, when you're a, a lifetime second baseman, you can help out the guy who's filling in at first by yeah. putting the ball at his chest, mm-hmm. not bouncing it near his toes, you know? So <laughs> I kind of laid the blame between both of them, but, um, I also, like when LaRusse is like, all right, you know what? This is going to be a close game. <laughs> I'm going to need, I'm going to need to have you take a seat, kid, you know? Yeah. And then they brought, what you call it? Um, uh, what's his name out of left? Uh, the Golden Spikes winner, Andrew, Andrew Vaughn. Yeah. Uh, they brought him out of left, put him at first, and then put Lurie out in uh, left field. So. It was fun. I, I wonder if some of the strategy behind putting your mean at first base that day was just in case he has to make a sliding play at first, the runner gets the fuck out of his way. <laughs> that is a good strategy. Yep, you are not standing in, in the line of that freight train, my friend. <laughs> uh, Fritzy, do you have anything to plug while I still have you here? Uh, for anybody that is a baseball fan and a boxing fan uh, like myself, you can uh, tune into my boxing podcast with my friend Franco. Uh, we're, if you just search punches and punchlines on whatever platform you're on, uh, you'll find us and uh, give us a listen. Always a pleasure to have you on the show, please.